get started now. Um, so I know that uh, as we've been going through the confession, uh, we've, been, we've been doing it relatively quickly on one hand. On the other hand, there are many chapters, and our goal is to get through it. And so we're trying to, to push, but not push too fast. And sometimes we deal with big topics. And so we thought this would be a good time to uh, pause from making our progress going through the confession and uh, come back and answer questions to make sure uh, we're all up to speed and have been able to ask the questions that, uh, that we have wanted to. And so um, we um, have you, you're looking through the questions there and kind of categorizing them and whatever. Yeah. All right. So um, there's, a, there's a question uh, here. If you'll open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. In verse 12, Morning. and we talked about this when we preached through Romans and we, we touched on it uh, perhaps momentarily uh, earlier in our discussion, but uh, the question here is, uh, comes on, a, on a, a paper here and it says regarding Romans 5, 12, all sinned. And the question says, I read this many times, as all became sinners because Adam sinned, the teaching that was presented at the time was that uh, we all inherited from Adam a sin nature. It wasn't until later I realized the verb tense captures all as having sinned when Adam sinned, and hence all are charged with Adam's sin, his sin imputed to his progeny. So uh, the question there is regarding the verb in, in uh, Romans 5 and verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And uh, when we preached through this, we, we talked about this, the fact that all sinned there, the end of uh, Romans 5 and verse 12, is indeed in the aorist tense, seems to be what's being indicated there. Uh, is different than perhaps we might originally read it. I think most of us have read it and thought, uh, well, yeah, all have sinned. Meaning each one has committed their own sin, and therefore they are sinners. I think that's the way it's often taken, um, you know, just in a casual reading. But it, it does say that all sinned. It's pointing to the sin of Adam, the sin that Adam committed, and saying that we sinned in that moment. Even though we hadn't been born yet, that we were wrapped up in him, we sinned at that time. Which is different than saying all have sinned. Which of course is true also. But when the question is why are we sinners? Why do we have sin counted to us? The answer is not, well, because all have sinned. Each one has committed their own subsequent sins. That's true, but that's not really the answer. The answer that Paul is driving at here in Romans chapter 5, which is an integral part of the argument that he's making in 12 through 19 there of Romans, is that indeed all sinned at that moment. Their sin was already completed, accomplished, had, had been done. That when he sinned, we sinned. And so therefore that sin uh, is applied to us in that way. Now it's also true that we inherited sin nature. Right, that we follow suit, that we um, have a desire uh, and, and all of these things, that we have a sin nature. Yes, that's true. And it's also true that we follow suit and sin ourselves by the sins that we commit. Those things are all true. But what Paul is arguing here uh, goes back to the concept of federal headship that we've been talking about in Sunday evening quite a bit, that uh, Adam was representing all humanity when he sinned in that moment, that we in him sinned. It's like uh, I use the example of our federal government declaring war on Antarctica. We did too. When that happens, we have declared war, right? So his action is our action because he represents us. And so um, that, that uh, uh, translation there is correct uh, when uh, so death spread to all men because all sinned already done in Adam. And so that sin is accomplished, um, which perhaps is a different way of thinking uh, about that question. Does that answer the question uh, in its intent or no? Yeah, I would try to emphasize that all sin once in the past, and 
Yes. Yeah. And there, there are some who argue that uh, from that passage that all, all sin, as in that sin is passed down, right? Only that, not the representative nature. But the problem with that is in verse 19 of that same chapter, you have this parallel, right, between uh, Adam and Christ. Uh, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So just as Adam's sin is, he's our representative, and we're sinful in Adam, the parallel there our federal head through faith his righteousness is our righteousness we don't uh, get infused a little bit of righteousness that's not what it's talking about here in which we work out and become righteous that's the Roman Catholic notion uh, it's that Christ is our representative and so his righteousness is our righteousness just as Adam's sin was, was our sin Yes, it was. Absolutely. And we sinned in him. Yes, it's all, it's all connected in, in that regard. When he fell, we fell. And so his sin is imputed to us. Yes. Yeah, our sin is imputed to Christ. Is imputed to us. The, the righteousness of Christ then gets imputed to us. See, we, we run into problems when we really want to argue against um, the the sin of Adam being imputed to us because the other half of the equation uh, then um, causes us problems. If we're unwilling to say that the sin of Adam is imputed to us, then we have a problem with saying the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us or our sin can be imputed to him and punished in him. You see, it needs to work the same way on both sides. And, and it, it really does. And that's Paul's argument here in Romans chapter 5 is uh, imputation goes both ways, that yes, Adam's sin is imputed to us. And uh, in, on the other side of that equation, uh, our sin is imputed to Christ and punished in him and his righteousness imputed to us. That imputation uh, function must be uh, a reality or else we don't have our sins paid for and we don't have the righteousness of Christ given to us. So it's a very important understanding how that, how that equation works and that it works on both sides. Um, yeah, I think that's adequate. Maybe what we'll do since we have some, is this a question related to that same? Okay, yes, Sarah, go for it. No, it's future there. Well, there, there, are, there are many who have not yet believed who will be made righteous. Um, and the, the final conclusion of all of that will be declared uh, in the future. But, but the one, obviously the events of Adam are all past uh, because of what he accomplished accomplished what he did in the past and and but the the effects of Christ and the imputation and things that happened there are still ongoing in future to be finalized so that's that's still an ongoing thing are these questions still okay uh, Troy and then and then Debbie that's right so the the instrument the instrument of the reception of that imputation is faith, yes. So, so like in the courtroom, so to speak, there, our action, Christ did it on our behalf, but our action is, is to believe. That, that's what crosses over, so to speak, the line of, of you know, in, in the justice part of thinking of this, right? So our part is to believe, so that's what crosses over the trust and believe. That's right. The instrument of our reception of that, the, the way we receive that imputation is by, is by faith. Yes. Be, because faith unites us to Christ. Yes. It takes us out of having Adam as our representative to having Christ as our representative.
So the, the question the question is, what is faith? Okay, so, so yeah, the question is, what is faith? So faith is the looking away from ourselves to him. It's a, Calvin called it the open hand, realizing I, I don't have it. You, you have it. I need it from you. And so, um, so faith is the, is the looking to Christ that I, I must have him. Like, he, he does it. He accomplishes it. I don't. And so, and so I look to him. I, I'm, I'm trusting in him, resting in him and what he's done and, and not what I've done. Um, and so um, that's, the, that's the instrument by which we are united to him is, uh, is that, that faith, that open hand of faith. Um, that faith itself is a gift of God that he gives to us, but he does not believe for us. So he grants us faith, just like he grants us repentance, uh, but he does not believe for us. Of course, the classic text on that is Ephesians chapter 2, and, uh, and I believe this was discussed last week in Sunday school as well, uh, wrapping up that, that great uh, 2, 1 through 10 section, um, starting in verse 8 in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast, etc., right? So the, the this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, uh, references that whole package, all the grace, the, what Christ has done, the making alive, the, all that kind of stuff is, is the package deal and it is the gift of God, including the faith by which we receive it. And so uh, God does not believe for us, but he grants us faith. Another passage dealing with that is uh, Philippians 1 and verse 29. So just, just uh, flip over to Philippians 1, 29, which talks about being granted faith, right? So Paul here talking, verse 29 of Philippians chapter 1 says, For it has been granted to you, it's been granted, grant gift it's been gifted to you. It's been given to you. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. There are two things being granted. What are they? Faith and suffering. Those are granted to us. Those are gifts that Paul says are given to us. Uh, granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe, that, that, that's a, a grant, that's a gift of God, but also that you would suffer. And so get, uh, faith itself is a gift of God, though he doesn't do the believing for us, but he grants it to us. And, uh, and, and the, the response uh, that we have when he grants us that, when he makes us alive in Christ, when he has... Um, given us new birth, to use John's language in John chapter 3, the response when we finally come to life, uh, to life in the Ephesians 2 language there, when we've been made alive with him, is that we, we look to Christ and we, and we believe in him. We trust. For the first time, we've, we've, uh, we've been sane, as, as it were, right? That when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were turned inward, we were looking upon ourselves, we valued our own things, we didn't want God. That's a the natural man is in that condition, rejecting God. Remember, no one seeks for God. All of Romans 3 and all that were turned inwards, right? Well, that's not a normal state for humanity. That's normal state when we look around, but man was not created that way. Adam and Eve weren't created that way, and Jesus wasn't certainly that way, all, all, of, uh, all of whom were human. It's not the natural, uh, it's, it's not the, the uh, essential human condition that were turned in that way. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a warping of what's real. And so what happens is God reaches in by his spirit and gives life where there was death. Suddenly we are born from above. We're born again, to use the language in John chapter 3. And what do we do? The first thing we do is now we've come to our senses and, and, we, and we look to Christ immediately. That's that, that's that gift of faith. And so that's caused by, uh, by him having made us alive. Uh, Debbie. Correctly, it sounds like 
before we were born, it was imputed to us. Yes. So then, on the other hand, for those who are going to become believers, would that righteousness of Christ have been imputed to them before we placed faith in Him? Not that they were going to receive it and act upon it until Christ opened their eyes. So the, the question is, if Adam's sin is imputed to us before we were born, is Christ's righteousness imputed to us before... Is Christ's righteousness imputed to the elect before they're born? Is that, that correct? Okay. So I think the answer to that... So the answer is no, it's not. And I, we, we see that in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. So Paul there, um, including himself in this mix here, talking about uh, uh, writing to the Ephesians, he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So the, the, their, their condition was dead, right? Uh, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, see, so includes himself there, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Okay. Yeah. Would that righteousness have been imputed to them? Again, not that it would have made any difference because yeah. they were still unbelievers. So, and at the moment of faith, then the imputation that's already there becomes alive or whatever you want to call it. So the, uh, the answer again is on the, uh, the connection between uh, the imputation of Adam's sin to us came to us before we were born, and so then does the imputation of Christ's righteousness come to the elect before they are born, though it's not activated or whatever until, until faith? Yes. And again, I would say the answer is no, that it's faith is that instrument whereby that happens. God has elected it, God has determined it, etc., but until that moment of faith, no, there's no imputation. There's, there's none of that happening the, the until diff- that moment. Adam is our federal head naturally, thank you. by nature. It, it, it already exists. Christ doesn't become our federal head until faith in Christ. That's the moment in which we're united to him. There, a, a, a historical note, there have been those who have taught exactly what you're saying. Um, it's called eternal justification. Yeah, and, and God, even though he's outside of time and is eternal, he works in time. Things happen in time. In time. Uh, I'm not. I'm not certain. I see what so, you mean, but I think. Yeah, I, I, so the, I, I think the, we're, we're veering a little bit. Yeah. Let's, you know, um, the question is... Go ahead. Um, yeah, so how, if that's the case, how were men justified before Christ came? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hadn't actually come yet. Yeah. Are you asking a question? I'm sorry, Troy. <laughs> yeah, I think... Okay. It sounds like you're processing. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Let's get to some of these card questions. Just uh, hold on to your question until. Oh. oh okay. Can't. But all of that discussion all also leads to something I've asked you. So on this, on this topic, the, the question uh, being asked is about um, 
uh, babies, uh, maybe infants in the womb, uh, young children, um, those who, who do not arrive at, a, at an age to be able to, or, or, or perhaps a mental capacity, to be able to understand and believe and, and therefore be saved, are we to assume then that they are all not elect um, because of that? And that's a, that's a tough question. So in this one, we want to handle very carefully. Um, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about it. It just doesn't say a lot about it. You've got the statement about uh, David and his son, uh, born between him and Bathsheba, who dies and, and after the baby has finally died, then David says, um, he will not come to me, but I will go to him. Right? And so we know that David is a believer. We know that David is going to heaven. And so, um, but that's, that's a, that could mean something different. It just doesn't, it, it doesn't outright, it's not a slam dunk that that verse therefore means all babies go to heaven or the babies of Christian parents go to heaven. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that because David could have been speaking, I also will go to the grave and die. The Bible just doesn't tell us a lot about it. And we can reason some particular ways to try and help ourselves understand it and think about this topic. Um, but I think we have to do so very, very cautiously just because it says so little to us. It's a driving thing. For us, it's a, it's a pressing question for us that the Bible doesn't answer clearly, I, I would say. And so therefore, we, we need to be cautious and we need to remember that um, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. And I, I personally believe this is one of those secret things that he, just, he doesn't tell us. We have to trust him with that. Um, some, some will want to make a real strong argument that uh, of various kinds, and I think it's, it's difficult to make a really strong argument on, on this topic. It's, it's a thing where I, I shake my head and I, I look to the Lord and trust Him for the answer that, that I'm not, I don't think I'm going to know in, in this life. That's my take. Stevens may be different. Yeah, I would agree that there, there are those who give a real strong statement because we desire that, right? We want But we want to be careful not to go beyond what Scripture says. And so where, where I rest is God has revealed who he is. God is righteous and just, and he's also gracious and loving and faithful and merciful. And so I don't have a particular answer as to what happens, but I know that's who God is. And I know at the end of the story in Revelation, we'll... And glory will be singing, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. And so, though I don't have a specific answer, I, I know who God is as he's revealed himself, and I know the end of the story, that, that we won't have any problem with whatever the answer is in glory. Um, That's a tough question without a really good answer, I'm sorry. Yeah. At least uh, the, way, the way we see it. Yeah. I, I, I don't have I don't have much place to argue argue with you on, on, on that question. Nor am I likely to argue with you very often. Sam. But it, it's a very it's a very tough question. But God God yeah. is good. Yep. God is good and gracious, and we can lean on that. All right, all right. Uh, explain how God's will works with our will. Put it in cowboy terms where a dumb cowboy can understand. Andy, did you write that? <laughs> <laughs> you want to take a shot at it yeah um so how does god's will work with our will um i i i think we have this idea that they're enemies right that um that if i, I think the question is probably And, and the Bible has no issue with that. It seems to us that those things fight against each other. That if God's sovereign over all things, how can I have free will to decide what I want to do? Right? But you, you look throughout Scripture and 
few very big examples where the Bible clearly says that there's no issue between those two things. You have Joseph and his brothers being one of the big ones, where uh, at, at the end there, after uh, Jacob dies, his brothers are fearful that Joseph's going to knock them out and get revenge. And Joseph says that um, what you determined uh, for evil, what you planned for evil, God planned for good. Who planned it? Who planned to sell Joseph into slavery? And, and so on and so forth. Joseph's brothers planned it, right? And why did they plan it? For evil purposes. Why did God plan the same thing? For good purposes. That's in Genesis 50, if, if, you wanna, if you're taking notes. And so it seems like, well, how can both of those exist at the same time? They do, right? Uh, you have um, the... Uh, the biggest one, I think the most helpful example, is probably the cross. In Acts chapter 2, if you want to turn there. Acts uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So whose plan was it that the most evil thing in history would happen? According to that first part of the verse. God. Why did God plan that the most evil and purpose, that the most evil thing in human history would happen? For what purpose? For salvation, for our good, right? And for his glory. So he planned it. He purposed it for good. The second half of that verse in 23, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Why did those men crucify Christ? Was it for our good and for God's glory? It's because they hated him. They, wanted, they had murder in their hearts. This was an awful sin. That they hated God so much that they wanted to crucify the uh, uh, God incarnate. Okay, so both exist at the same time. What's hard for us is we, we assume that those things can't exist at the same time. That God's sovereign over all things and that we actually have choice. But, but the Bible does not But uh, it's called concurrence, is what some people call it, that, that both exist at the same time. God sovereignly planning and purposing all things for good, and, and at the same time, men actually choosing what they want to do. Okay, so why are we here this morning? Because God planned and purposed it, right? And why are you here this morning? Because you wanted to be here this morning. We have to just accept that, that both exist at the same time. And I think part of it, the reason it's so hard for us, and I talked about this last week, is, is we, have a, we can't fathom the infiniteness of God's uh, sovereignty. Right? Because this is a sovereignty that exists at the same time of man's free will. That we actually choose what we want to do. Um, hey, I wrote it. I have certain uses. There are not many. Yeah. <laughs> for the listener yeah. Pastor Brennan wrote something on the chalkboard Yay! he can do it <laughs> anything you want to add to that well I just, I just wanted to say that a, a good a good study of that um, is also found in Isaiah uh, 10 verses 5 through 12 where you have an interaction there um, with uh, the king of Assyria and what he wants to do, the king of Assyria just wants to plunder and become the richest and most powerful man in the world. And God says, I'm going to use that guy to uh, discipline my people. And, and then he says to him, uh, but that, uh, the king of Assyria wasn't trying to be useful to me to discipline my people. He just wanted to get rich and kill people. But I used him for that purpose. And by the way, I will discipline him for it later. So where you see both working concurrently. So how it, to us, it seems like, well, either God purposed it or we purposed it. It certainly can't be both. And scripture again and again says it's both. Yep. If someone struggles with the concept of election, 
where would you suggest they start to understand it better? Books of the Bible, commentaries, etc. Uh, well, Genesis, I would say, I would say, um, is a, is a place uh, to start, and it's going to be one of the points from the sermon this morning. Is you see election all over the place in Genesis again and again, and somehow it doesn't startle us there that God went to Abraham and chose Abraham out of out of these all of these idol worshippers, picked Abraham, and then uh, between the two sons of Abraham picks Isaac. And then between the two sons of Isaac, picks Jacob. You see that again and again play out in, uh, in Genesis itself. And then uh, subsequently also. But, but we kind of cruise past it, I think, in, in Genesis and think, oh, that's, that's no big deal. God chose a people. Then, then we get to the New Testament. And when we're talking about specifically salvation, then it becomes, well, but how, you know. Th- then the question, I think, comes closer to home. It's not distant history. <laughs> It's not, it's not reading about something that took place thousands of years ago. It's, it's the lives of people around us and perhaps my, my family member who doesn't know Christ. And I begin to be concerned on a personal level. But the same principles apply that, that saw God choose Abraham, the father of the chosen people. We don't even choke on that. But now when we're talking about, oh, salvation to eternal life and, and my relative, oh, now, now I'm very, very closely interested in that, in that conversation. So Genesis is a good place to start. I think, I think um, Ephesians chapter 1 um, spells it out clearly, the, the, the blessings, the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. And when did those blessings start and for whom? Again and again, you see, he chose us. He chose us in him, in Christ, he chose us. And he, he placed this uh, upon us, etc. You see the great blessing. So Ephesians chapter 1, um, you see it spelled out in, in pretty great detail. And then uh, the entire argument of, of Romans chapter 9. I mean, it's a whole chapter dedicated uh, on, to this topic, pretty much. Uh, and then finally, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of conclude it here, but, but uh, John, the Gospel of John. Uh, again and again in the Gospel of John, you see God's uh, electing hand at work. So, for example, John chapter 1, and I, I, there are many, many passages, but once you see it in John, you'll stumble across it every chapter. You'll see that this is, this is a part of what John is wanting us to understand. So, John chapter 1. Um, Starting in verse 11, he came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born. So this is, is, is a child a child before or after being born? After. Before they're born. I mean, I'm not talking about fetus versus baby. That's not, that's not what's going on. But someone doesn't exist before they're born. In, in, the, in the language of this. So who were born, not of blood. So it wasn't yours genetically. You didn't inherit being a child of God because of who your parents were. Nor of the will of the flesh. Nor of the will of man were you born. But of God. God gave the birth. And everything else came after that. All of salvation and all that comes, comes after that. And, and once you get that idea in your mind in John, you'll start seeing it all over the place, particularly in chapter 3, really big in chapter 6, chapter 10, chapter 17. You'll start seeing it all over the place. And so that's, um, that's a long answer to a, a really good uh, question, but that was pretty short. Yes? Sure. So the, the comment is uh, that um, we ought to begin with prayer because the issue may not be we don't see it in Scripture, but more that we 
see it and are not comfortable with it or don't like it. And so, it's, so the issue is really not about understanding what's on the page, but about working through what's in my heart on the topic. I'm not trying to mischaracterize I'm trying to characterize it. Okay. And that, that actually relates to another question here. When I do not like or agree with something that is clearly spoken in God's word, what should I do with that? Prayer. Yeah. And, and I would add to that conversation. We're, we're here. <laughs> Feel free to talk to us. You know, if you don't believe these things, we're not going to question your Christianity. We're not going to come at you. You know, we love to, to work through things and talk through things with people. And so I would encourage that too. And on, the, on those heart issues, um, that's, where, that's where a lot of work is done. Um, a lot of the, my own sanctification has, has dealt with coming to grips with those things. That, I, that I, well, I, you, I begin to see it with my eyes on the page. My brain begins to understand that, it, that it's there. And, and, and all of a sudden I realize, oh, I don't like that. That, that is a sanctifying process as I work through that. As I, as I um, try to come to grips with what God is really like. What his word really says. That, that's where real growth happens. That's huge growth. Um, and so I, I, that, that is a very real and great place to realize that you're in. To, to work through that because you're wrestling with who God really is. We all, we all come to Scripture. We all have conceptions in our mind of what God is like and how He acts. And as we read Scripture, it, it, it corrects that. And, and sometimes in tiny ways, oh, I, I didn't really realize that. And sometimes in, in big ways, but, but, um, but it's God's grace and mercy when he does that in our lives. And, and, we, and we, as we see it there and we wrestle with it and we bring it to the Lord in prayer, we begin to love it. Because it's who God, our God, really is and, and what he's really like. No. I think that's a good you know, point that our goal, our end goal isn't just to believe something, but to see the beauty of the truth and to praise God for the truth. That, that the truth, you know, it's God. God is inherently beautiful and good and wonderful. And so, you know, there are things where we can maybe even arrive to, okay, I believe this thing, I know it's true, but I don't like it. Well, that means there's still some work that needs to get to be done, I think. That, that the end goal is we should be praising God for the truth, whatever the truth is. Um, that's a process. If someone, is, I'm kind of kind of reword this, this two-part question, and feel free to say if you wrote this question that I'm wrong in changing your question. Um, if someone is struggling with that process, does that mean they don't have the Spirit of God living in them? That, that, that's not what that means at all. I, I, someone struggling through that process is infinitely better than someone not caring about that process or not even observing that, that it exists. Uh, like I said with the, with the last question, there, it's, we're, we're dealing with who God is. I mean, th think about how often Israel had to deal with that. Think about how often, uh, even in, in, in Genesis, the people of God have, to have, have had to deal with God, what God is really uh, requiring, what he's saying, what he's like. Think about the apostles face to face with Jesus and Peter rebuking Jesus, right? You think Peter was wrestling through his perception of this? That's exactly what was going on. That process is a, is a, is a, a, a blessed and gracious sanctifying process because what we are doing is wrestling with who our God really is. We're realizing, oh, he's not like me, which is a really good thing we all recognize. He's different, but in, in what ways is he different? In what, we're, we're, we're wrestling and grappling with who he really is. That's a great place to be as we're engaged in that uh, wrestling match. That's a really, um, that's, a, that's a strong place of growth. And you can see 
you can see when someone begins to wrestle with these things earnestly that I don't, I see it in Scripture, but I, I don't like it or I'm not comfortable with it yet or that's not really how I thought God was. Watch them over the next month or two and you will see a lot of growth happen when they stay engaged in that, in that wrestling match. The maturity comes very quickly and, and suddenly there becomes a love for the Bible. There becomes a love for God that, that they hadn't realized before. There becomes an engagement that is uh, a blessing to that person and a blessing to all the people around them. It's a great place to be when we stay engaged and allow ourselves to be discipled by the Bible, which is what's happening when we're in, engaged in that process. The danger, the danger is, the, the, caution, the, the caution in that is to run across something, to see it there, and then to turn the other way because I don't want to deal with that, right? You have an opportunity. Deal, wrestle through that wrestle through that. Um, don't, don't head for the hills. Um, don't avoid that topic. Because, because I, I've also known, known people who have developed sort of a callus about that topic and it's like they go around it and it, and it begins to, to change the way they view other things in scripture that perhaps they would otherwise have straight, but because they, because of really, really not liking that topic, <laughs> it, it, it has effects on, on other aspects of doctrine. Um, so no, it's a really good place to be. The London Baptist Confession of Faith states that there is one God and only one God. When the Bible talks about other lesser gods or tells us we shouldn't worship any other gods, this language indicates there are other gods. What is this referring to? Are other little g gods demons? Are they non-existent figments of people's imagination? How do we reconcile the language Scripture uses with that in uh, the London Baptist Confession of Faith? Do you want to see the card? That would be helpful. Well, well Brennan, Pastor Brennan is reading that. I, I just want to say that there are also scriptural texts that indicate there is only one God. Uh, I am God and there is uh, none other. I, I can't pinpoint where that is exactly. I believe it's in I Isaiah mm -hmm. uh, declaring the end from the beginning. Um, he's comparing himself to the idols uh, which are just made up of, of uh, different materials or just created things created by men. But God is the one true God. So, uh, henotheism versus monotheism, right? The Bible is monotheistic, recognizing there is only one God. He exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but there is only one God, right? That's monotheism. Now, we, we talk about um, tr being Trinitarian, Trinitarian doctrine, etc., et that comes from that, but it, there is only one God. Henotheism is the idea that um, all the nations have their own God, but for us, the God that, that we worship is Yahweh, right? So yeah, the Canaanite gods, yeah, they, they, you know, they, the, the Canaanites worship Baal and the Egyptians worship Ra or whatever, right? All these other nations have gods, right? That's the idea of henotheism, is the idea that there are really these other gods that exist in the pantheon, but for us, since we are loyal and since we live here, we worship this God, the God of our place. That's henotheism. Now, what, what can be confusing is that Israel is monotheistic, or supposed to be. Very often they, they stop doing that, right? They start trying to curry favor with the neighboring gods, right? Baal or, or whatever. But the Bible, the, 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 the writers of Scripture, the prophets, are thoroughly monotheistic, but they are living in an environment that is henotheistic with this God's all over the place, but this is our special God or whatever. And so you have a conversation going on between these two that sometimes takes the form of, um, you know, you, you're worshiping these other gods, right? Um, you, you have, uh, the ultimate recognition is they're not actually gods. Perhaps they're demons, perhaps they're nothing, figments of your imagination. But in your, what's going on in your world, you see that you're worshiping these other gods also, as if they really existed. So 
Part of the confusion comes between uh, because those, uh, these two worldviews exist side by side and, the, and Israel is supposed to be monotheistic, but so often is not. They slip into something more like this, but actually they, they just kind of worship the neighboring gods so they get power from them too. And the, the uh, prophets have to address that topic. And so the, the, the language gets muddied in certain places. But in that same place in Isaiah, uh, in, in, in the 40s there, you've got the, um, the indictment of the foreign gods where, where God is saying, yeah, you cut down a tree and, uh, and you take part of it and you whittle it into this idol and you use the other part to cook your dinner. And you're going to bow down to that thing? How ridiculous is that? Right? God is mocking these foreign gods because they don't, they don't, they don't exist. Right? But the people have acted like they have been existing. So that's why there's some of the confusion is because they're dealing with people who do believe they actually exist. And so they are spoken against, they're railed against, they're mocked and all kinds of things. Um, and perhaps they're demonic forces behind them. Perhaps they're just figments of the people's imagination. That, that's a second question. But the first one is, uh, there is only one God. But the people didn't always believe that. And so those people needed to be addressed. Um, Six minutes. Yeah, last two questions are kind of doozy. You can take them. Okay. Well, one of them is actually a quick answer, even though it's a doozy question. Uh, if sin is uncreated, but we're born into it and clearly surrounded by it, where does it come from? I don't have, I don't have an ultimate answer as to where sin originated. Uh, and I think that's something the Bible doesn't reveal. We have, we have Adam and Eve, right? And they're tempted by Satan, but the, maybe the question is, who tempted Satan? Right? And the Bible doesn't reveal that. That's a very challenging question that I don't have an answer to because I don't think the Bible answers it. Um, sin itself is not a created thing. It, it, it merely twists creation. Right? So uh, I, I often think about this with personalities. Right? Uh, so for instance, someone can be stubborn. Is being stubborn in and of itself a, necessarily a bad thing? Can you be stubborn about good things? Yes. Does sin twist that? Yes. So that we're stubborn about bad things. Right? So sin doesn't actually necessarily, uh, sin doesn't create anything. It merely twists what already exists. Um, it's not creative. It's destructive. Um, that's how I'd answer that. And then the last question, I think, uh, written down. If there is a sentence, paragraph, or section that you as elders do not fully agree with, how will you handle that as far as keeping or admitting for the possible adoption as our doctrinal statement? So that's a, an excellent question. Part of the, a large part of the purpose of us going through the confession is to examine it line by line, word by word, to see whether this, is a, this uh, represents uh, Scripture accurately. And so um, if we were to come across a place that we just disagreed with, then uh, we would be faced with um, either, either submitting some sort of an edited version of this for, for acceptance, perhaps, or maybe looking elsewhere for another one. Um, we, would, uh, we would have to deal with that if, if, that, if that situation arose. Um, there is... There, is, uh, there are a couple of places that, that, we're, that we're looking at pretty hard. Uh, or, I mean, we're thinking about and will be looking at um, pretty hard. We're, we're studying through it in detail, uh, talking about it uh, in depth, several chapters in advance of where we are in this class uh, for the purpose of examining it as thoroughly as we, as we can. Um, there's a statement that's, that's difficult for us that says the Pope is the Antichrist. Yeah. What, is that? What, what do they mean by that? Uh, what does it mean in its context? Um, and and how, um, how are we to understand that? So the guys who wrote this, as, uh, just, we've only gone through three chapters, and you can tell that they weren't flighty. They thought through every word. They thought through the, the, you know, the semicolons. They, they thought through it all. So why would they make such a statement? Well, I think it takes some, it takes some, uh, some thought to think through what they meant. And, and, and I, th I think I have an answer to that. I think... Uh, what, what was going on in that section because it's not in the eschatology section. <clears throat> it's more, I think it's in the, it's in the, the section on salvation. I think it might be on the church. On the church, okay. So, yeah. 
the, the structure, so the Pope, if you think about Roman Catholicism, the Pope is the vicar of Christ on earth. He, the man, is the vicar of Christ on earth. He represents Christ here. Everything must go through him in some way. He represents him. And when we talk about the structure of the church, who is the head of the church? Christ is the head of the church. Therefore, if we, if we think in, in bold terms, that is anti-Christ to put a man in Christ's position. Is, is that what they meant by it? I, I, we'll, we'll examine that when we get there in, in very great detail. They, they don't mean to say that in our conception, the Antichrist who's going to rule the world and, and you know, that, that from kind of a dispensational background that many of us are from, that this, this great Antichrist is the Pope, particularly this one in 1689, right? Because that, that Pope's dead and gone and there are many more after that, right? Um, but we'll look at it very, very closely to see if indeed that's, that's what's intended, that this model is an Antichrist model. When you put a man in the place of Christ, that is by definition antichrist. Is that what they meant? We'll, we'll have to see. But So, uh, short answer. Um, that uh, w- if, if we get to a place where we're like, that's just not biblical. That's not biblical. We're certainly not going to accept it. We're not going to offer it for, for, uh, to be accepted. Uh, we will either edit or, or look elsewhere um, or discuss something like that. You, you can answer. Yeah. Yep. Well, it's time. I think we got through most of the index cards, index card questions. If you have more questions, uh, please, please ask us. We'd love to talk about them. Um, and so, do you want to end us in prayer? Yeah, let me, let me close this in prayer. Father, again, we are so grateful that you have given us your word, that you have placed your spirit within us. Father, we ask that you would help us to um, think hard, to be in prayer about what we see in your word, that we would wrestle with how it is you present yourself in Scripture. When we see ourselves in Scripture, it's so often not flattering. And it takes us a while to work through that, though it's true. And when we see how you are uh, presented in Scripture, that can be difficult for us to uh, perhaps comprehend, perhaps Uh, just apprehend or even deal with at times because you um, are not always like we have imagined you to be or we have heard you are or uh, we can conceive in our minds. Likewise with salvation. As we encounter these things, these, these topics in Scripture, we want to be discipled by the Bible. And so I pray that you would help us as a church and as individuals by your Spirit to be discipled by your Word. Uh, and, and all this is for your glory. This is for the good of the church. This is uh, a wonderful thing when you do this, and we pray that you would indeed do it in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.